0: So, Father's Day. Every Mother's Day and Father's Day, we like to do a message. I guess I like to. Who's we? Really? Yeah? Is this a royal we? <laughs> I like to do a message that has to do with mothers and fathers because it's so central. Uh, in, in Hebrew culture, ancient Hebrew culture, the family was everything. The, the structure of the family was everything. And so, so much of their spirituality and so much of their theology comes out of the structure of the family. The more we understand about the Hebrew family and how they felt about it, how it it just grounded their lives, the more we're going to understand about the way that they saw God that they have now encoded in our scriptures that we are reading and trying to understand. And So it kind of comes all together. Um, On Father's Day, it's so important to consider the importance of the relationship that we have with our Father. You know, much of ourselves, who we are, our personalities, so much of of how we look at the world, see our place in the world, how we look at God, comes from our fathers. We probably don't realize how much comes from our fathers, for better or for worse. Now, my father, you couldn't get a more Midwestern man. He was born in 1918 in Pittsburgh, Kansas, grew up in Omaha, Nebraska came of age during the Depression and World War II, and he was a stoic and quiet man. Strong, but kind of distant. You know, he had that mis- Midwestern character where he really didn't express much. You know, you didn't, you didn't emote much, he didn't emote much. I knew he loved me, I know he cared about me, but I didn't really know him very well. He was He was just kind of this constant in my life but not someone that I really connected with. I remember, you know, getting those plastic models that we used to get as kids. Does anybody still make plastic models anymore? I don't know what kids do. Maybe they're just always doing it digitally. They don't do it for real anymore. But we used to get these plastic models. And so I'm building this model, and he kind of looks at me and just says, in my day, (laughs) here we go, right? (laughs) We made all the parts ourselves. And so I just kind of let that one slide, and I kept doing my thing, you know, and it it was a vague disapproval, but... When his mother died, a trunk of things came from Nebraska to us, and I got a chance to just look through and look at old pictures. There was a newspaper clipping of my father having won an award for a model plane that he made from scratch that was, had all the ribbing. It had all of the sheeting on the, on the wings and on the fuselage. It had working electrical lights and leather upholstered seats inside the plane that he did from scratch. Then I understood what he was talking about. But see, I had to wait until his mom died, and we got the newspaper clipping. It's nothing that we sat down and talked about. It was just, and you know, it was just my dad. I didn't really think anything of it. But now, all these years later, I realize I am my father's son in many ways. Now, I didn't consciously make the choice to be my father's son. I just suddenly realized that I am. I am quiet. I am kind of stoic, you know? And it's, it's amazing what I learned from my father that I didn't realize that he was teaching me. And this is what happens with all of us. We don't consciously choose, but at some point we realize we have absorbed more than we thought that we did. And religious teaching works exactly the same way. It's a question of immersion, especially if you were raised in the church. And so as a child, you're absorbing all the things that you don't even realize you're absorbing. Things about attitude toward God and family and everything else in the world, but especially about God. Now, the deep significance that I was talking about, the ancient Hebrew family structure, it was overlaid on their concept of God. It influenced their thoughts and their concepts and their images of God. And those concepts and images that they understood that were absorbed from what they saw in their family life and they saw the structure of their family life that allowed them to survive, those were then preserved and encoded into the scripture that they wrote. And in turn, as we read those scriptures, we are influenced. Our images of God are influenced but maybe not in the way that they were originally intended, because we have our own culture. We have our own way of looking at things. The Hebrews saw God as father, of course. They saw him as king. They saw him as a patriarch. They saw him as judge, executioner. They saw God as fulfilling all the roles of an ancient king, overlaid on God. The Ten Commandments gives us the hierarchy. And if you want to take a look, if you have um, inserts in your bulletins, we have those because we're not going to read the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are arranged in such a way that give us the hierarchy of the way that the Hebrews arranged their lives, spiritual and, figurative, and spiritual and physical. The first four commandments are all about God. Think about it, you know. There is one God, you know. You will have no other gods before me. Second commandment, you're not going to make any images of God, because then you'll worship that instead of the God behind the images. You're gonna keep God's name holy. You're not gonna make it worthless by using it to swear an allegiance or a vow that you later break. And you're gonna keep holy the Lord's day, the Sabbath. The first four are all about God. The fifth commandment is about fathers and mothers. Honor your father and your mother. And then the last five, are about the tribe, right? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. And so what you see is going on just in the hierarchy the way the Ten Commandments are laid out. It's God first, right? God delivers the law. Then it's the parents. The parents deliver direction to us. And then the tribe, the tribe requires obedience. With those three levels in place, in that order, you have a very stable culture you have a very stable tribe and nation and they held that in place with very strict laws most of the infractions for any of these laws was death Obviously, the worst thing that you could imagine. Even though it was rarely carried out. At least there's no evidence that it was always carried out or even carried out in some cases. But there were very strict laws. Everybody knew their place. Everybody knew the hierarchy. Everybody knew what they needed to do in order to be a part of this culture. It was kind of a military structure, a chain of command. God, parents, tribe. But... The Hebrews also had a cultural balance. The father, Ab, that we've talked about, Aleph Bet, strong house, is always balanced by mother, M, Aleph Mem, strong water. And we talked about the strong water, in case you didn't catch that, was the idea that it's the... uh, The residue that comes up when they would boil their hides and tan their hides, that was skimmed off and used as glue for their tents and other uses. So mother, strong water, was seen as the glue that held the family together, while father, strong house, was the one who gave structure and gave everything that the family needed in order to survive. But they saw them both at the same time, a complementary pair that couldn't be separated. Now, God was understood as the original balance of earthly parents, Ab plus Chokmah, Chokmah meaning wisdom, wisdom that was always personified as feminine, as female. And so the Father God, the knowledge, the executor relationships, and that Chokmah, the wisdom, the relationship, the connection, the glue that holds everything together, a combination of both qualities in equal balance, in perfect balance, that's how God was understood. And so, unfortunately, our culture doesn't provide this same balance, right? It doesn't give us the idea of God as mother. We just don't see that. It's not as specifically used in Scripture. You have to dig a little bit more. We don't see it. Now, possibly at the street level, the Hebrews weren't that balanced either. I mean, it was a very patriarchal society, and women and children didn't hold the same place that men did, but ecclesiastically. The prophets understood that this balance was everything. It's up to us to find that balance again, to see it in the scripture and understand it so that we can bring it back in. Because without the balance of mother, M, chokmah, we're going to see father always reflected in our earthly fathers. We're always going to see father God reflected in earthly systems. And we talked about that before. What is the earthly system? Well, it's always performance for approval, right? It's quid pro quo. That's the early earthly system. If Father God is only reflected there, and we don't get the balance of M, Ima, Mommy, Mother, that is the compassion, is the mercy, is the unconditional love. We're going to be skewed in how we look at things. Think about your earthly father. And I know roles are changing, and everything is is uh, moving all sorts of ways culturally. But generally speaking, the father has traditionally been the one who worked outside the home. So he was less present to the children. Father tends to be more demanding, stricter, the disciplinarian, right? The judge, (laughs) wait till your father gets home, that kind of thing, right? That tends to be the father's role. Father reflects that world system of performance for approval, the ethic of the world more than mother generally. Although, as I said, roles are changing and everything is in flux, especially now. But equally damaging, the church reflects that father's role. The church reflects that world system of performance for approval. And no matter how much we talk about, yeah, we're saved by grace. It's all about the father's love, but the very hand that gives us that gift takes away with the other hand and says, but you've got to follow the law. And if you aren't cleaned up by 12.30 on next Thursday, then you got a problem, you know. And culturally, we are still in that system, performance for approval, as if there are finite resources. And so we grow up in this system. We grow up in our families. We grow up in the world. We grow up in our culture, our media, and our churches with a legal understanding of the way the world works. And then we impute that to God God works the same way. It's all about performance for approval. Follow the law. Be obedient to the law. Don't do any of the things that break the contract. And we grow up with a zero-sum game view of life. You know what zero-sum is all about? If somebody wins, there has to be a corresponding loss on the other side because the net gain is always zero. There is no new wealth being created. There's only so much oil in the ground. There's only so much to go around. If I get something, it comes out of somebody else's hide. If somebody else wins, I have to lose. Zero sum. We see that in life around us. We see that in the church reflected there. And so we impute it to God as if the same thing is going on with God. Performance for approval, finite resources, wins only at someone else's expense. In other words, we have a mentality of scarcity, as if scarcity defines our lives, defines life in this world. Now Jesus is painting a very different picture of his father, and he's trying with everything in him to get across to us that his father works on a completely different economy, a completely different economy set of rules of engagement, if you want to say it that way, right? Let's take a look at a few passages and see if we can put this together. At John 10.10, John 10 is the, uh, the beautiful chapter about the good shepherd. It's Jesus using the metaphor of the shepherd, using the metaphor of the sheepfold. And he says, I am the door to the sheepfold, and those who come and go by me find pasture and find rest at night. Anybody who jumps the walls, that's a thief and a robber. He's using this extended metaphor to try to get across his role as he is working with and teaching his people. I am the door. Only through me are you going to find, through this door are you going to find what you're looking for. There's no shortcut. There's no other way. And then he says, I came that they may have life, at verse 10, and have it abundantly." This isn't about gritting your teeth and getting through by the skin of your teeth. Just hanging on until the rapture, until death, you know, until the end of the world, whatever it is that you're thinking is going to be the end of all things, and just somehow eking by. That this life is a veil of tears. It's something that we have to endure. Run the race and get to the other side. Jesus is talking about an abundance to life. I came that you might have life, but have it abundantly overflowing more than you can possibly deal with. This is the kind of life he's talking about. How many of us feel that we're living that kind of life where resources are overflowing? And I know you're thinking physical resources, but we're really talking about spiritual resources that then infuse everything else that we do, regardless of circumstance, regardless of the level of our resources. But it's supposed to be an abundant life at Luke 5, starting at verse, actually we're going to start at verse 4, but if you want to go back and read, read 1 through 17. This is where Jesus meets Simon, soon to be renamed Peter for the first time. And uh, Simon and his brother Andrew and the rest of them have been fishing all night long and caught absolutely nothing. And by the time Jesus walks by along the shore, their boats are back pulled up on the on the beach and they're drying their nets And uh, he asked Peter if he would take him out into the water because the crowds have followed him. And so Peter just goes out just a few yards into the water and Jesus preaches from the boat to everybody who's gathered along the shore. And when he's done preaching, then he says, take your boats back out into deeper water. And he says, you know, why should I? I? We just spent all night fishing. We got nothing. There's nothing out there. The fish are someplace else but I'll do it, Lord, you know, and he goes out and Jesus says at verse four, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, master, we worked hard all night, caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled up both of the boats so that they began to sink. And if you remember at John 21, after the risen Jesus is on the shore and they hadn't caught anything and he yells, at them, hey, put your nets down on the other side of the boat. That's even a little bit crazier, right? But same thing happens. There's so much abundance, they can barely haul it in. It's sinking the boats. It's breaking the nets. This theme of abundance keeps moving through everything that Jesus is talking about. He's trying to get us to understand that there's a different way to approach life. Life can be approached in a different level. At Matthew 14, 14 to 21, we're going to start at verse 19. This is where his brother John has been killed in prison. The king had him beheaded. And Jesus, in grief, retreats all by himself into the hills to pray. But when he does that, the people follow him because they heard that he was going off. And so they follow him and they follow him around. And finally, when he comes back, here's all these people. And he takes pity on them. And so he heals them. But then night starts to fall. And the disciples come and said, send these people away so at least they can go to the village and get some food. And Jesus says, well, you feed them. <laughs> what are we going to do, Lord? They were supposed to be named, numbering somewhere in the 5,000s or something like that. It was supposed to be the men, right? So women and children would have expanded that number. And Jesus is telling them to feed them. at verse 19, ordering the people to sit down on the grass, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, which was all they had, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves. He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. And, of course, when you see 12, remember, that's a symbolic number. That's the full cycle. That's the full round trip coming back to center again. But 12 full baskets. They were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. And, of course, this is repeated in Matthew 32 and in the other Gospels as well. Abundance. The disciples were thinking in terms of scarcity. We always think in terms of scarcity, don't we? Jesus is thinking in a completely different way, that life is based on abundance, not scarcity. In Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, this is where Jesus is talking about loving the enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, because that, So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So that you may be literally avatars of your father who is in heaven. That's who the son was to the father. If the son came to you in the father's name, he was the avatar. He was as if the father were standing in front of you. If you want to be as if God were standing in front, then love your enemies. Don't let your love stop at the borders of your camp, don't let love stop at the borders of your tribe when your love can be as full and as indiscriminate and all-encompassing as the Father's love, then you are his son, his daughter, his avatar, his representative. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is not just love justice, love. This is love that is actually unjust. This is love that is so indiscriminate that it falls on those who deserve it and those who don't because that's just what it is. This love self-exists. This love existed before anything else existed. This love is who the Father is. This love is something that can't be tamed. It can't be earned. It can't be categorized. There's nothing you can do with it. It just is. And it is so abundant and so all-encompassing that it's everywhere at once. You should be getting a picture of the absolute extravagant abundance of the Father at this point. Wild outpourings. Wild expenditures. It's like the story of the prodigal son, which is really the story of the prodigal father, isn't it? Prodigal means wastefully extravagant. It's a son who is wastefully extravagant only because the father was prodigal first, gave him everything that he didn't deserve just because he asked for it. Let him go off and do the things that he did. And when he comes back, he pours out even more on him, everything that he has for this party, to the outrage of his elder brother, who was the one who stayed home. But notice what's going on here. Everything is indiscriminate. It all is there. There is no scarcity. It's certainly not zero sum. There's always more to be had. And the elder brother's share is not diminished if his younger brother gets more or vice versa. Both sons have everything there is to have, everything that the father has all the time, every when. This is so hard for us to comprehend. It doesn't compute. It doesn't track with the world out there. But Jesus is trying to get a point across. When it comes to spiritual matters, this is your father. This is what your father looks like. And to drive this home, Jesus called his father by different names. He called him Ab, father, the traditional name, the tribal leader, the king, the judge, the creator of all. But then he had a genius stroke when he experienced his father intimately, not just the king of the world up there on the throne, but intimately, he called him Abba, which was the word that the kids used for their personal father, an intimate relationship. Daddy, right? Intimate connection and relationship. And it brings in the elements of ima, mommy, because that intimacy, that connection, the, the compassion, the mercy of Abba is all reflected in Ima. And so the balance starts to come in. When Jesus uses this name, it implies so much in their language. It was probably shocking to hear the first time they heard it. You're calling the king of the universe daddy? Are you kidding me? You know, But as they got to know them, him, they understood the reason, what he was trying to teach through this simple name. And now... Third name he uses. Look at the first lines of the Lord's Prayer at Matthew 6, starting at verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We say this at the end of every service. This is burned into our consciousness in, in, uh, in Western culture. It is the most widely known prayer, probably of any prayer, on the face of the earth. But do we really know where It's going. If you take a look at the Aramaic transliteration, just what we translated. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But that first word there, Abun, is our Father. But if you take a look at it in Aramaic, it's, still, it's broken down into two parts. There's still Ab. You see the A and the B, the Aleph and the Bet, which means the strong house that we just talked about. But the Vun, we don't know as much. That W, there, Vav, can be pronounced either as a W or as a V, and Nun, our N. The dalit was uh, originally the pictograph of a tent peg. Signified something that was secure, securely anchored, that would hold up. And noon was a pictogram of a germinating seed. You had the head of the seed and you had the the plant starting to tail off from it. And so it was the idea of something that continues. So ben, the word for sun, is bet noon, the house that continues. Here we have vav noon. Something secure that continues. When you put Avun together this way, as Jesus did, it's a strong house, it's secure, and it continues. You have the idea of a strong creator, the strongest and greatest builder, the strongest and greatest leader of a house that continues. And it's non-gender specific. This is not male or female in this case. And so, really, we could be talking about a cosmic parent here, the creator of everything, the first cause of everything. And then we look at the second word, Devashmaya. Devashmaya literally means in of heaven. I guess you could translate it that way. There are no prefixes or conjunctions in Aramaic or Hebrew. They just add, I'm sorry, there are no conjunctions or prepositions, all the little words in Hebrew or Aramaic. They use prefixes and they use suffixes. And so that D that you see with the apostrophe, the Dalet there, that can mean that or which or of or from. And then the B there, the Bet, that is also a preposition, means in or with regard to. So when we translate in English, our Father who art in heaven, who is in heaven, we're adding words there to try to make it make sense for us. Literally, this is just our creator, our cosmic parent, in of heaven would literally be the way that you would translate it, or in from heaven, or which in heaven could also work. There's so many different ways that it can be translated, but here's the difference. If we think of God who lives in heaven, it's God and heaven. Heaven is a place, and God occupies that place. But really, there is not that kind of separation in the idea in Aramaic. God and heaven are connected. God and heaven are really the same thing. God and heaven are identical. And that changes the way that we look at this. The roots of the Vashmaya is Shem. And we've talked about this before. It literally means name for us, but it can mean light and sound and vibration. But more importantly, it can mean essence, character, or reputation. The idea of Shem is it's the outer face, the outer skin of something that reveals the inner essence. That's why Hebrew names always mean something. They reveal the character. Yitzhak, Isaac, means laughter because... His parents laughed when they were told that they were going to have a kid at 100 years old. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Every name means something. Jesus, Yeshua, literally means God saves. And so each one of these names is the outer face of something that reveals an inner transformation, the surface of something that reveals an inner essence. And so the question for us is, what shows the inner essence of God? Shem. With an A-Y-A ending, Shemaya, the A-Y-A suffix extends something without limits. Remember I just talked about Ben being the name for son? If you add A-Y-A on it, you get Banaya. That means generations. It means sons without limit, sons extending on forever. That would be generations. When you take Shem and add A-Y-A, Shemaya, you have the heavens, the skies, God's domain, forever, unrestricted, They understood Shemaiah as the visible face of God. They understood Shemaiah as God Himself. Shemaiah was used as a euphemism for God's name, which they were not allowed to say because you're going to keep it holy, remember? Fourth commandment? And so Shemaiah would be a name for God. They understood it as interchangeable. What does the visible face of the heavens, of all creation, of the universe show us about God's inner essence, about God's character? In other words, what does the universe tell us about God? I don't know how much you've looked at modern astronomy and what it's telling us about the numbers in the universe. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing. Insanely extravagant would be the, probably the way to put it. Abundance beyond belief in terms of the cosmos and even the biosphere. Can you say overkill? I was reading and, and trying to find, out, okay, if, if how many galaxies are there in the observable known universe at this point? You know, we can say billions and billions, but that doesn't really do it justice. Right now, the amount of galaxies, these are galaxies, all right? Not solar systems, not stars, galaxies, like the Milky Way galaxy. In the observable universe, the lower end of the estimate is 170 billion galaxies. But that is not even scratching the surface now astronomers are estimating there could be as many as two trillion galaxies. Okay. A trillion is a thousand billion. A billion is a thousand million. It's an exponential curve. When you get into the trillions, it just it's, it's just doesn't even compute in human terms. If there are two trillion galaxies out there, all right, there are possibly one hundred To 700 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which by all accounts is a pretty punk galaxy. It's not very big, you know? It's just a little galaxy started on the far end of the universe. But there could be as many as 700 billion stars in the galaxy. Multiply 700 billion by 2 trillion. How many stars are out there? And each star can have its own solar system, with planets that are circling it? I always remember that line from the movie Contact. You know, if there's no other intelligent life in the entire universe, it's an awful waste of space. (laughs) Two trillion galaxies, each with maybe as many as 700 billion stars with solar systems and planets revolving around them. And each planet Take a look at Earth. How many species would you say is on the face of the Earth? The low end is 8.7 million species. Now, most of them are bugs, and, you know, they're bugs. But still, 8.7, and the high end of that, because they think there's so many species we haven't even discovered yet, up to one trillion species just on Earth alone, which, again, is a pretty small planet as far as planets go, And then think, how many individuals within each of those trillion species are there? Billions and trillions of individuals, especially when you're talking about bugs. There's a lot of bugs out there. You want to talk about insane extravagance? What does the universe tell us about the character of our God who just showers? It's like God is saying, well, if one is good, then a trillion is better. I mean, this is crazy. God is extravagance personified. Are you kind of getting the picture here? Overflowing with abundance. In God, we don't receive at someone else's expense. We're all paid the same. Remember that wonderful story about the workers who come early in the morning, midday, and with an hour before closing, and at the end, they all get paid the same? And the ones who came early and worked all day, they're really upset. But this is God. God doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. God just is flowing outward like the heat and light of the sun is just there. You can go stand in the shade if you want to, but you're all going to get paid in the same. There's always more where that came from. But see, the world doesn't look that way to us, does it? We weren't taught or trained in this way. And truthfully, in a closed environment, like your house, your budget, A region of the country, the, the, the country itself, the planet, those are closed environments. And in those closed environments, yeah, they're finite resources. They're constantly changing. They're constantly moving. But in a closed environment, over short time spans, it doesn't look this way. It doesn't look like there's just always more. Spiritually, though, is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Can we see through the cracks of the physical world? to the spiritual reality that's beyond. Jesus is trying to show us a spiritual truth despite the physical realities that we live with every single day. The human experience that is so coloring to everything that we understand. I got asked a question a while back. How is it fair if people can hurt people their entire life and then at the end of their life ask for forgiveness and everything is okay? You know, kind of like the thief at the cross there. You know, he did all the bad stuff. He's there strung up with Jesus. He just says one thing, remember me in paradox. And Jesus says, okay, I'll all you in free. Come on. Is that really fair? I mean, what's going on? See, this is a perfectly reasonable question from a certain point of view. You know, from the normal, legal, zero-sum point of view. It's perfectly re- legal, uh, reasonable. That's what the elder brother was dealing with when his father was treating The prodigal son, the way that he was. But what if there's another point of view? One of my favorite novels of all time, or series of novels, a science fiction novel, centers around a desert planet. The, The most of the action takes place on this desert planet. The entire planet is one sand dune. The entire planet is a desert. Um, There is no rain. There is no standing water or running water on the surface of the planet anywhere. It's just sand. No clouds. No precipitation of any kind. Now imagine what that does to a people if they're living lives and generations on a planet that has that kind of scarcity. They have to do everything in order to survive by dealing with the realities of the water. They wear what, are, what they called still suits that enclose their entire bodies so that their breath and their sweat and their urine and every type of fluid was captured and recycled so that they could re drink it, so they lost no water in their bodies. They had dew catchers that they put out at night that would catch the, the tiniest moisture from the atmosphere at night as it condensed and then draw it into basins that were underground. They lived underground because you couldn't live on the surface. Everything about their culture, everything about their religion, everything about their mindset, everything about their behavior, the way they lived, the way they ate, their bodies had to change in order to be able to adapt to this harsh environment. But everything about their way of life, was all focused on water, the scarcity of it. Water was like God to them, almost, and God was the one who brought the water. So in the course of the story, some people from a planet much like ours get connected with these people, and there's one great scene for one of the, from one of the ones who's from this other planet, and she says, you know, where I come from, water falls from the skies. And it runs in great rivers, and it, it, it collects in oceans. And there is this collective gasp from the people that she's talking to. And then this sigh, and then this murmur in awe that there could be a world like that. There could be a place where water falls from the sky, that you can drink it, that you can bathe in it, that you can swim in it. Things that were completely unknown to these people. And it's blowing their minds. They can't compute. You see, we also live in this desert mentality. We live with a mindset of scarcity, of competition, of rationing, of supply and demand, of zero sum. That's the way that we look at our lives. That's the way we look at the world. But what if we could step off a starship in a world where water falls from the sky? where everything that we are fighting so hard to get in our lives that seems just out of reach, always out of reach, is just falling from the sky and running down the street and collecting in pools where you can just drink it, swim in it, jump in it, splash in it, be extravagant and wasteful with it, because there it is, and it keeps coming. Drink all you want. What if you were poor all your life? some of you are saying, I don't have to imagine that. What if you were poor all your life, you pinched every penny, you did without, and then suddenly you win the lottery? Yeah? Suddenly you get an inheritance from a relative you didn't even know existed, or you get a new job that brings in money that you didn't have before. How would that change your view of life? How would that change your behavior? How would that change your outlook? What if you were lonely? all your life, and suddenly you meet someone, a life partner, who has a family, and you're grafted in, and suddenly you've got a family, and you've got an extended family, and you've got these noisy family meals, and there's a place at the table for you with your name on it, and you're suddenly part of everything that you never had your entire life. How would that change the way that you look at life? How would that change your attitude? What we believe about our Father, Abun, colors all of our lives. If we believe that he's a God of scarcity, if we believe that he's a legal God of performance for approval, then our entire lives are going to be colored by that attitude. That's how we view it. But Jesus is telling us that our Father is an inexhaustible, abundant, extravagant love that literally just falls from the sky equally on everyone, regardless of who they are, where they were born, whether they're just or unjust, righteous or not. This love, inexhaustible love, just falls from the sky. It's always there for us. We're swimming in it right now, whether you know it or not. We're breathing it right now whether you know it or not. You can't diminish it. You can't turn it off. You can't redirect it. You can go stand in the shade if you want to. You can put an umbrella over your head if you want to. But it doesn't change the fact of it. It doesn't change the undiminished extravagance of it. And no matter how many people get it, it's still all for you. (laughs) You get no less for each of us There is no less. And there is no more than everything either. God has an infinite number of best friends. And that changes everything. And it's not about how long that you've realized that this love is there. It's only that you do realize at some point, whenever that happens to be. It's there regardless. Whether we realize it or not. Whether we live it or not. Whether it changes our point of view, our attitude toward life, or not. Whether it makes us grateful or not, it's still there. It doesn't matter when you realize that it's there and let it change you from the inside out. It's only that you do. You can't earn it. The admission is free. And every seat is front row center. That's the way God is. Do you really care when others arrive? You only want everyone to have everything that there is and everything that you have because it's not gonna come out of your pocket. God's extravagance is so much different than that. When we understand that we already have everything that God can give us, it changes everything about the way we approach our life. That's who our Father is. That's who Jesus is showing us. And yes, we still have to live our lives in the way that the world system works. But when we understand that there is this Father who showers us with everything that we need from the inside out, that infuses everything out there, regardless of circumstances, with that kind of meaning and purpose and sense of okayness, everything changes. And on this Father's Day, to understand who our Father is is a good step forward. Let's pray. Father, this is who you are. It is so absolutely difficult for us to get our heads and our arms wrapped around this, and you know that. That's why you went to such lengths to try to show us who you are with the sheer abundance of creation showing us the face of who you are, with your Son teaching us and showing us what human life looks like that has been turned on through the abundance of your love. Help us to follow that track. Help us to fall into more and more that understanding so that we can relax even as we work hard. We can know that everything's all right even when we're going through the pain of a difficult circumstance. Help us, Lord, to slowly understand, to experience more and more of who you really are so that we know that we know that everything really will be OK. Father, thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you for our fathers, flawed as they are. They know We know that they loved us. We know that they tried, did the best they could with the tools they had to work with at the time. Help us to transcend that and understand how your fatherhood works. And that will take us the rest of the way. Never let us forget, Father. We can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand.